Hello, my name is John McGowan and welcome to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the Salomons podcast. I'm joined by what I hope will be our regular uh, panel, Anne Cook. Hello. Angela Gilchrist. Hi. And Rachel Terry. Hello. And today we're also joined by our colleague, uh, Fergal Jones, also a clinical psychologist. Hello. And a reader in research at the Salomons Centre. As some of you know, we're based in Kent in the UK, and some of the core business of our centre is training clinical psychologists and cognitive behaviour therapists. We also do a lot of work in health settings. It's clear that we're very concerned not only with psychological thinking and theories, but also with psychological therapies. What we're going to discuss today really is, are these things any good? Are they of any value? And so I suppose that's my first question to the panel. Does psychotherapy, the talking cure, as Freud referred to it, does it do you any good? You're looking at me. Well, I guess it's the question for me is who judges that? Uh, and there's all this kind of therapy outcome research, um, which seems to imply that, um, you know, there's somehow some kind of way to measure how useful it is. But I think that begs a lot of questions. And it also, it positions therapy are very much akin to a pill, something that you can say, okay, it is this, we're going to deliver this, and we're going to see whether it's effective on you know, it, it reducing this and that symptom. And of course, under that is a whole load of assumptions. Whereas to me, essentially, therapy is a conversation between two people. And, uh, you know, one person is there with the purpose of helping the other person. And that person is the one who's in the best position to know whether that conversation is helping them, uh, what they want out of the conversation, uh, how it needs to be changed if it isn't being very helpful. So it's very different to a pill. Hmm. I think one of the biggest problems, really, is assessing psychotherapy outcome in medical terms. You know, outcome seems to be primarily interested in reduction of so-called symptoms and that's only one possible outcome of psychotherapy and until we can get it out of that mode I think a lot of the evidence base is built on sand really. But we were coming from a starting point where there was very limited evidence base and I think that was a problem because we need to be um, as therapists um, offering things that we know have been helpful to people in the past. So we do need to be looking to some sort of evidence base, but I think we also need to be more aware of how sometimes simplistic the evidence base is and how problematic it is. But at the same point, we don't want to discount evidence because we do want to be trying to offer interventions that can be helpful based on some knowledge. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I think evidence is very important, but I think it's how we gather and think about that evidence that we need to put under more scrutiny. I think we're very we're far too focused on looking at therapy by brand mm. as well. You know, when we when we say for example that cognitive behavioural therapy is effective for depression, what do we really mean by that? Because cognitive behavioural therapy mm. consists of many different things. Mm. It's cognitive restructuring um, it, it, it's all the all the different ingredients that make up so-called CBT, and I think we need to be looking more at what are the change processes that help people, rather than looking at therapy in specific brands. Yeah, because it lumps it all together. A brand is a whole load of things put together. Probably of all of us, I'm, yeah, I would agree there's limitations to the outcome research, but 
but perhaps I feel more positively about some of the work that, for example, NICE collates. Mm. And, I, and I think, because I do think it makes a powerful difference to people's lives. It's not to say it's not limited, but um, some of the NICE guidance about, for example, what helps at least on average in relation to depression or various anxiety conditions or PTSD has led those forms of talking therapy to be more available to people who are in distress and, and, and I think there's reasonable evidence that it has helped people's lives. So I, I'm cautious about knocking the value of that too much. I mean, I, I would agree there are a lot of assumptions and there are limitations to it, and including things around um, it's often about groups, and on average, we can say that something is different to something else. Um, often, we can't say what it is about a particular therapy that makes a difference, and it may, may well be different things for different people. And I think there's also questions about how does therapy that's done in trials generalises mm. or not to what we offer in clinical practice. But nevertheless, I still think that that body of research is is a value. Could you say something more about that, Fergus? Just the notion that what we are actually putting, what we're looking at within a trial as to why that might or might not be applicable to a wider population. I guess one of the one of the issues is the circumstances in which a trial is conducted compared to the circumstances in which therapy is offered. And I guess it, it comes back a bit to what Anne was saying about it being different from a pill. So with a with a drugs trial, with a pill you can I guess be more sure that the pills offered in the trial is the same or, 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 or very similar to what's offered in, in, in clinic in the NHS or wherever. With psychotherapy of course that's different. We have um, therapists who are offering them and one of the critiques of trials is that is sometimes made is that the, the people, the participants in the trials may have lesser severity and less comorbidity mm. in, the, in the randomised control trials than in clinical practice. There's some actual debate about that, and I'm not sure how true that is, because in um, in the United States, for example, I think some people who are not on health insurance or, or have limited access to psychological therapy seek that through trials. So actually, sometimes I think the complexity may be greater in trials, but I think where there is a problem is that often the training the therapists have, the number of sessions they can offer, the amount of supervision that they have, is probably, in general, not as good in clinical practice as in the trials. Mm -hmm. So even if even if we, we accept all the assumptions that they're based on, which we can, aspects can at least be critiqued. Do you think there's a problem with how evidence is used in practice, the idea of evidence? Because I've certainly had people come to me who said that they've been told that, you know, that they felt that what they needed was a particular thing, a particular kind of conversation, but they've been told, no, that's not evidence-based. And I think what people forget is that evidence does tell us something. It tells us about what works on average for people. It doesn't actually tell us anything about what's going to work for that person. And I think sometimes it can lead us not to be sufficiently humble as therapists. We think we know, you think, you know, because there's this thing called evidence, we think we know what will help that person. And of course we don't. We just know what on average has helped other people and all we can do is offer things. And if people think it might possibly help, then we can try it out with them. But that's not sometimes how evidence is used in practice. And of course evidence is used to inform what money is spent on various services and some things just aren't available because there's no nice guidelines, not even nice guidelines. But surely we have to be humble in front of that kind of evidence. You know, I've got a particular therapy and I want I want to say this is good, I want it to be into the nice guidelines. I feel it's good, I feel I'm doing good work, but you know, I do a trial on it. And it turns out it's no better than nothing. Surely I have to be humble in front of that kind of evidence. Yes, you mean 
on so the trial has shown that on average people did as well with nothing as yours. Well, yeah, I, so I, that does. No matter how great I feel about my therapy, I have to. You know, uh, I think we do. We do have to be humble. We do have to be concerned with evidence, because otherwise, any of us could say that anything is going to be okay. For example, mm -hmm. eat more bananas, and you know that will fix your depression or whatever. So I think we we do need to be humble in the face of evidence, but I think we also need to bear in mind that there is a large body of work now which suggests that something like. 40% of the variance in psychotherapy outcome can be attributed to extra therapeutic factors. Mm -hmm. So that's not techniques, not what the therapist is bringing, but all the extras, the unknown quotient of the relationship, things like hope, things like what the client expects, their motivation, things that happen outside of the room but happen to impinge on the process. Mm -hmm. can, no. can, can I ask you, I think that's a really interesting point because in many ways therapies, the way therapies get traction and get ahead is, is by being branded. So you have you know, cognitive behaviour therapy is obviously the most popular therapy kind of at the moment and probably the dominant model. Now, we can find research to suggest that on average that does a lot better than nothing for a range of, for a range of presentations. But this is a question that's often in my mind. How do we know what bits of it are doing good? How do we know it's actually the relationship? How do we know it's not like the tone of our voice or something like that? How do we, how do we know whether it's a, a challenge to the evidence for your belief. Randomised control trials are brilliant ways of answering certain sorts of questions, but it seems to me that it's more cumbersome. I'm thinking, Fergal, directing this towards you partly, how do we tease out which is the bit that's having the effect? I think it's hard. You can use dismantling design sometimes if there's a, um, a substantial bit that you can remove from a, a therapy and look at that independently, but even that is complicated and, and often I think the difficulty is probably different components interact and they probably interact differently for different people so I would tend to agree that an RCT is probably not it's not going to provide you with all the answers in relation to that and, and I guess for me the most convincing evidence is when you have convergent evidence from different types of research so when you have um, experience of working with people and it seems to be helping when the people you're working with that is making a difference to their lives. I think where the difficulty comes is, is when there's some kind of disagreement. And I guess one of the, I guess everything has its limitations. So, so I agree with the idea of respecting what um, the people we work with seem to be finding helpful. But also I have some experiences in relation to randomised control trials where there seems to be something that people are saying is helpful, that the, the, the therapists feel is helping. But the, at the end of it, when you look at the data measuring the things that people think made a difference, it, they're, they're no different to the control group. But that might be, mean that we aren't measuring the right things, because as we said before, measures tend to be symptom-specific, whereas perhaps they should be more about are people's goals being met, are the goals that people came in with, because the goals might not always be symptom-specific or may not be one disorder-specific, whereas the outcomes might I think in the examples I was thinking of, though, it, it was in relation to the specific problem. So our individual perceptions of what might be most helpful for us or as therapists, again, are, are limited too. So I, I think ideally it's about having some kind of convergence of evidence and, and at least where that tends to agree, then I guess we can draw stronger conclusions.
I think it is important for the public to know or to think about the idea that anything that can potentially help can also potentially harm. And there is, you know, the public on the whole does seem to think that therapy is a very benign process, that, you know, you just go and talk to somebody and no harm can possibly come from that. And we know, actually, that this isn't necessarily true, that some people report getting worse as a result of therapy, and we're not always sure why that is. We're also not altogether sure how to define getting worse, because we know that some people's symptoms are going to escalate during the course of a therapy as they come more into touch with feelings, more into touch with depressed emotions and so on. But I do worry a bit that, you know, when people have a very kind of casual approach to therapy, let's try it, you know, it it can't do any harm, That isn't always true. And there are some people who perhaps shouldn't be referred for therapy in certain instances. I know that's going to be a controversial statement, but I'm thinking if only six sessions are available and somebody has very complex trauma, say, you could do far more harm by opening it up as opposed to just giving somebody social support if you haven't got enough sessions to do a a really good job with that person. But aren't you arguing against having um, restrictions on the type of conversation that you can have and how long you can have those conversations for, rather than arguing against the possibility of a a set of conversations being helpful to that person at all? I'm arguing for caution. We can't categorically say that therapy is going to be helpful in every case. No, absolutely, but isn't that the converse of saying it's, um, uh, you know, we have to watch about being harmful because both of them depend on suspension of judgment you know uh, because one person is seen as an expert we we as the public kind of think well they ought to know what they're doing um and that you know as a as a client i would the danger is i go to a therapist and i think well you know it's making me feel worse but um you know she's an expert she knows what she's doing and i suspend my normal kind of judgment that i would have well you know, when I talk to that person, it doesn't make me feel better. So perhaps you need to have a different conversation or I need to talk to somebody else. Well, th- this is something that I wanted to bring up. There are a couple of things to it, really. I think you raise a very important uh, point, Angela. And you also pick up on something about it, Anne, which is about length of time. What about the way we offer these things? Do we offer, for example, people long enough engagements to be effective within the NHS? The, the issue I was thinking of is that around the time that they're improving access to psychological therapies, Um, initiative came along. There was a a review that was much cited by somebody called Drew Weston and colleagues and they said well actually you know all our evidence is is suggestive it's based around a 16 to 20 session model of therapies no matter what your model and actually that's not enough for a gain and actually we in the NHS we regularly offer considerably less than Mm -hmm. that. Now it's not enough for a sustained gain you know you're getting a gain but it's not enough for a sustained gain mm. on, you know, however adequate or otherwise you think that the outcome measures are. I suppose the other issue that's floating around in my mind is, is about harm, you know, about negative effects of therapy, not just in not being enough. But I think you raise the issue of, well, how, you know, how do we know when there's a potential for, for harm? And, you know, maybe that's not something we think about enough. Mm. We talk about it plenty when drugs are involved. Yes, I, th- I think that's true. We don't... 
we don't talk enough about the potential harms really. My mind goes back to critical incident debriefing prior to some research which suggested that it shouldn't be offered unless people began to show frank symptoms of a PTSD. And that was very controversial. I worked in South Africa a lot where there's a huge amount of trauma and critical incident debriefing was used a lot and this research caused enormous controversy. People couldn't believe it actually. Why shouldn't we offer this? And despite the research, some people still wanted to offer it, saying it would it definitely would help. And it's interesting how people can get very invested in a certain mode of being and in offering certain things despite what the research says. Now that that can be very dicey, I think. You know, I agree, and I, I was um, reminding myself about some of the nice guidance in relation to PTSD before this before this podcast, and that's one of the things that's in there, that it's not recommended as a general form of provision, mm-hmm. some kind of immediate debriefing in the first three days after a trauma. And I guess it may be moving away slightly from, from the specific point, but this, this is why I value or where some of the value for me in that sort of randomised control trial and then reviews by NICE is that it gives us at least some kind of overall sense of things that may or may not be more or less helpful and, and where to invest resources. But I think a key thing and in NICE guidance and in other things is there's a sense of this is not the final answer, this is something mm-hmm. to inform judgments that... that, mm-hmm. that um, clinicians make and I think also clients should make as well mm. but I would I'd agree as well I don't think we look enough at the possibility that, of harm but mm. I think it's very briefly I'm just going to say it's very difficult to know what's caused that I think is the challenge mm. because the, the, it, there could be many things that cause that and if someone deteriorates during the course of therapy then they may have deteriorated more as a result of the therapy or, or, or perhaps less than would have otherwise been the case if they hadn't had it there's well, also sorry you go I was just thinking in terms of harm caused by therapy, there's also the wider issue of um, harm, potential harm caused by the ubiquity of therapy in society. So, you know, there are there's huge, horrible things going on everywhere. And yet the answer that gets trotted out is, oh, you know, let's send the people off to IAP for six sessions of CBT mm-hmm. or whatever, as if that addressed the problem. And the danger is that that put, takes our eye off the ball mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, we just look at life as, you know, a series of individual casualties to be fixed by some kind of technical fix, rather than looking at, you know, the very real suffering that things like austerity, mm-hmm. for example, cause. One of our trainees here has just done her um, research about um, service users that deteriorate on outcome measures through therapy. And one of the um, things that she found is that sometimes that's because things are happening in their life outside of the therapy room that are making it very hard for them and are very distressing and therefore it's hard to make progress or improvement, if you want to use that expression, in therapy when they're living in poverty or they've got housing situations. So I think that very much is is some, a reality out there and yeah. it's hard for people to have therapy in those kind of circumstances. Mm. Well, it's tricky, isn't it? I, I was in, interested in that and again, I think we have uh, online versions of that and we can link to it if people are interested. But I was struck by that just to the extent to which actually theories of how therapy has a negative effect aren't actually research isn't terribly well evolved in that area. I, at some level, I think I was thinking there was there was more. There was more on that, and this idea that you you know you're not necessarily offering offering therapy in adverse circumstances is kind of a tricky one because societally that's when we offer therapy to people or when we seek therapy ourselves our circumstances are adverse. Though of course it may not necessarily change 
some very concrete realities. Mm. Of it's interesting the comparison with drug treatments again because if one medication doesn't work you try another and that's fine but I think with therapy if one therapy doesn't work someone's more likely to write off therapy rather than it being you know, rather than trying a different therapist or a different approach. And it feels like there's a difference it's also, it feels like there's a difference between something not working and something actively causing harm mm. and I guess mm. I think from my point of view I want to say as well is to give some kind of balance that and I think a, well, at least the evidence suggests, and, and, and in my experience in clinical services, therapy can, for a lot of people, be helpful too. So it's not to say that, that in times it can't be unhelpful, but I wouldn't want people listening to this who didn't know much about therapy going away and actually feeling some significant anxiety around this being quite a risky thing mm. to take part in. Well, I think the evidence is showing quite clearly that it, it probably helps most people. And there's a lot of evidence as well that most of the work is, is often done within the first eight sessions, which is interesting. And the other thing is we don't have to take it on trust. I think mm. if, if you go into therapy with the idea of this is something I'm going to do with the therapist and together we're going to try and tease, tease apart what might have caused my problems, what might be keeping them going, what maybe I can try and do about it. And it's good to have somebody to talk to um, and then judge yourself whether that's happening. That's very different from taking it on trust, a bit like you have to do with a pill or indeed a pile of bananas or something else that somebody tells you, this will be good for you. And I think if we, if we go into it with that attitude, it's very different to take the kind of whole expert thing out of it. Yes, much of it does seem to rest on what people can bring to it and their own readiness. But I do, it does make me wonder sometimes about the degree to which consent can genuinely be informed for the endeavour that you're you know, about to embark mm. on and where it can take you. I mean, how... I suppose you can, there are degrees of meaningful consent, but can you ever really, you don't really know where you're going. And I would say one of the strengths of clinical psychology as a profession is that we try to draw on ideas from a range of different models and theories and work with the service users to think about what would be the best approach for them. But I guess the downside of that is that there's therefore not necessarily a clear evidence base for the individual work with that individual client when you're drawing on a range of ideas. Yes, we don't kind of market what we do as a brand of this is this thing that we do to people mm. and the, the downside of that is it's then very difficult to demonstrate how helpful we are but I suppose I agree with you that that's what we can bring and it's very very important to bring a range of resources that we can use that are ideas that are helpful that we don't have to provide to somebody in a package but we can draw on as we go on in, as and when they're helpful. Well, that, of course, is relatively contentious as well, as there are some who would argue, I'm thinking of Lord Laird, I suppose, the economist at the London School of Economics, who was partly responsible for an influx of funding, I think, into psychological therapies, that, you know, that we should actually be offering things in a, a consistent, model-specific way and not just flying by the seat of our pants or clinical judgment as we might say it less. But it's say not it less fine by the seat of your pants. It is offering an individualised, collaboratively drawn-up intervention. That's your version of it. It is my version of it, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and I think it's on a continuum because I think even a manualised treatment is individualised and is collaborative. So I think it is probably a question of degree. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the the question that Angela alluded to earlier is, is is a really interesting one about what's important. So there's this body of evidence about common factors, so like the therapeutic relationship. And there's another body of evidence that looks at things in a different way about specific approaches for specific conditions. And they, they both have evidence behind them. Mm. And and, there, and there's, I guess, some disagreement in the evidence. So some of the CBT literature suggests that changes in the therapeutic relationship follow 
changes in symptom rather than perceived changes in symptom. And it may also, and, and I think one of the challenges is these are complex human and social behaviours. So it, it may well be there's a complex interaction there that you need some kind of maybe threshold level of therapeutic relationship for something to work, but then beyond that, the, the, then changes in therapeutic relationship for some conditions follow changes in outcome, for example, is one possibility. The complex interactive dance. <laughs> and, it's hard to do the, the, and the other thing is, at least from a sort of randomised, the, the large-scale experimental studies, they're very expensive to do. So actually, there could be lots of interesting, and we'd still be limited, but there could be lots of interesting studies that we might want to do to, to look at some of these questions more. To, to, but to, to run a randomised control trial is in the um, hundreds of thousands of pounds, and resources are very limited. So... Mm. One of the challenges is we, while evidence can be helpful, we're, we're always well, we're going to always not have enough as much evidence as we'd like. I think. Surely RCTs aren't always the best way of thinking about therapy. They'll tell us that there's been an effect, but surely we need more experiential, phenomenological research as well, which tells us about people's experiences of therapy what they found helpful and what they didn't, because it is, after all, a human interaction. It's not a pill that we're talking about. No, absolutely, I'd agree. And I think it's where you have that convergence of evidence, mm -hmm. but it's that most, convinced, most convincing. So I think RCTs are just one strand of that. I guess, for me, I wouldn't want to jump the RCT because I think it, it's some of the different forms of evidence offset the limitations that they, that they each have. So I was saying earlier that, um, well, in many ways, our experience can be a good guide. It, it's not infallible. That there could be some things that we might be thinking are helping us and not actually the things that are helping us. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to ignore people's experiences because I think that's valuable too. And it's, it's just when we have differences between the evidence, and I think that's more challenging to try and understand that. But when people's experiences, the RCTs and other forms of evidence tend to broadly agree on a picture. The, the point, uh, we'll have to end shortly, but the point... Uh, that you raised about a complex human interaction got me thinking about a piece we published on our blog a few months ago by Lee Emery, who's an old trainee here, and Hugh Green, who some of you have encountered, who was a, well, I think he's a qualified clinical psychologist now living in America. And they were wanting to have a look at what happened when, well, the, the way they hung out, the peg they hung on was a mindfulness colouring book. And was this kind of a, you know, was this in some way representative of kind of a, of a dilution of ideas? So we just assume that a certain aspect of CBT or mindfulness is just going to work even if we disentangle it from that, from that human interaction. And in some way they were pointing to evidence of, you know, decreasing effectiveness for things associated with CBT and wondering in some ways why we didn't, why we weren't calling that out a little bit more like the way some people working in neuropsychology are it's a real point of honor to kind of call out you know dilutions or diminutions or or you know things that distort things that distort evidence and you know perhaps sometimes purveyors of psychological therapies aren't actually gutsy enough to do that they're too keen just to have it accepted you know up there with medication or or whatever, rather than actually calling the yes on, um, you know, dilutions of it. And the, the mindfulness colouring book kind of became symbolic of that, I think. I am quite concerned about the weakening of CBT. I think these days CBT, what is called CBT, can have massively huge variation. Mm. And the training of CBT therapists can have massive variation as well. So a member of the public can go to a serve an increasing access to psychological therapy service, for example, and believe that they're getting CBT when actually they're getting some support and intervention, but from somebody that's had very limited training. Yeah. But that might be perceived in the same way as having 
CBT therapy with a therapist that has done lots and lots of in-depth training and it's a very different um, intervention that they're receiving and I'm quite concerned about the reputation of CBT moving forward when lots of different things are being blanketed under the CBT umbrella when actually it's very different interventions that are being offered. So seeing a real person might be better than an interactive CD or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or a mindfulness colouring book. Or a mindfulness colouring book. Well, if that's possibly symbolic about what can go wrong with the endeavour of psychotherapy, I think we'll draw it to a close there. The best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe. You can do that on iTunes. We're now listed on iTunes uh, by searching for discussions in Tunbridge Wells. Also, you can find some of the links to some of the things that we've talked about on our blog, discussions in Tunbridge Wells, or discursive of Tunbridge Wells. As well as that, you can follow us on Twitter at CCCU app, that's A-P-P, and then Psy, P-S-Y, or on Facebook if you look for Canterbury Christchurch. University Applied Psychology uh, and we'll be putting links to some of the things that we've talked about and to the Twitter accounts of some of our panel on the sh- in the show notes. So thank you very much and I hope you tune in again. Bye.